tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Ah? Uh, I do have a car. You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> The Cult-Worthy Classic, a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Your host Antonio Palacios and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult-worthy. And so without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio Palacios and here we are on episode 6. Now towards the end of the 1960s, we began to see more and more films about psychopathic killers, mostly due to the massive success of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Films like The Sadist, Peeping Tom, Paranoiac, and Homicidal. But as we neared the 70s and the end of the strict production codes of old Hollywood, we began to see filmmakers from all over the world make riskier decisions with the content of their films. We began to see more daring displays of violence, gore, sex, nudity, and disturbing content. Now, as the 60s came to a close, several films pushed the envelope when it came to what audiences were ready for. And this film was a prime example. 1968's Twisted Nerve played not only on the theme of psychopathic killers, it took it a step further by playing on the idea that certain psychological and sadistic behaviors may be the result of chromosome imbalance, most notably the imbalance responsible for what we now know as Down syndrome. This film took such heat for suggesting that mental and neurological conditions could be the cause of violent behavior, so it was forced to place a disclaimer at the start of the film that stated there was no scientific basis for its themes and that it was entirely a work of fiction. The controversy at the time of this release caused financial and critical damage to the film in its native UK, but the film received mostly positive reviews in the States, leading it to become a cult classic in its own right influencing filmmakers like Brian De Palma, Mary Heron, and of course, Quentin Tarantino, who gave the film something of a rebirth after including its now infamous score by Bernard Herrmann in his Kill Bill films. So today, I will deep dive into this misunderstood and underrated thriller of days gone by with my friend Shane of the Shane and I podcast. So enough of my blabbing, let's start the show. And I am here with Shane of the Shane and I podcast. We're going to talk about a really interesting film today, 1968's Twisted Nerve. Don't scream. Hello, Georgie. Surprised you. I'd like to know what he does up there, day after day with a door locked. Face it, Enid, he's not normal. He should have seen that psychiatrist when I wanted him to. No, Georgie. Why not? Tell me, why not? I can't, I tell you, I can't. Got you down here. Got you! (laughs) And how about that? 
Now, watch your step. This chap's a nutter. He's a perfectly normal, healthy boy. Now, Shane, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for being on the show with me to talk about this underrated, cult-worthy classic. And uh, I'm excited because this was a first-time watch for you. Am I correct? Yes. Yes, never seen it, never heard of it. And that's yeah. like usually my favorite when I get to talk to people about films they hadn't seen because you'd be surprised how many people would have like been watching this their whole lives and telling their friends about it if they'd only known about it sooner. That was my experience. Like I watched it and then I then I when I I watched it and then I I get, I think I forwarded to my co-host Max or my my co-host Max and then another friend of mine <laughs> That's awesome. So Shane, uh, I've been listening to your podcast lately. You guys are hilarious. Not necessarily, nice. not necessarily a film or a movie podcast, and that's great because I like getting opinions from all aspects of the podcasting realm. Tell us a little bit about your show. Yeah, uh, it's called Shane and I Podcast. Obviously, uh, it's me and my co-host Max. We've been doing this. We've been doing this for a couple of years now. Um, we were originally doing a YouTube channel, and we decided we'd be better off doing more audio only stuff and we just became a podcast basically uh we had a we had one other we had one other show that we were doing called love and stuff and didn't really pan out for a couple of reasons um that's kind of the that's kind of our that's kind of our niche i guess it's a, it's a show about nothing we me and max just hit record and we just start talking whatever comes out kind of comes out and uh you know that's kind of how our relationship's always been we've been friends for years and and kind of Everybody that comes around us are like, oh, you guys should should start a podcast, and we finally did. So, you know, that's kind of the gist of the show. It's like one of those conversations that you get in with somebody, and then before you know it, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning, and it's time to go home. Exactly. But you could exactly. just keep on talking. It's just entertaining. So, yeah. I just love yeah. what people have been able to do with podcasts these days because there are no really rules. You can talk about beer you can talk about movies you can talk about aliens and there's always going to be an audience that wants to hear it and I, that's the beautiful thing for me about podcasting when we were doing youtube it was like we got stuck we were like stuck with like okay we have to do a nine minute video on this certain topic and we can't kind of meander around that topic and we then we were worried about views and we were worried, at least me i was worried about views and i was worried about like subscriber count and all that stuff with podcasting it just was there's more freedom in it to me like yeah. there was way more creative freedom to me and like you said you could talk about anything you want like not like our show which is nothing like your show which is a movie which is cult movies which is really cool and unique which is why i like your show is because it's on cult movies and i love a good cult movie so and digging up new ones that not a lot of people have heard about so let's jump into this cult worthy classic in a way, it's kind of ahead of its time because it's really, it's really suspenseful, and there's a lot of science behind it, like a lot of psychology behind it. Sorry, you know, it may not be the most accurate science, and they even put a disclaimer at the top of the film. Ladies and gentlemen, in view of the controversy already aroused, the producers of this film wish to re-emphasize what is already stated in the film that there is no established scientific connection between mongolism and psychotic or criminal behavior. I get it. They even thought about it back then. They didn't want people to think that anyone with a severe mental condition 
was walking around being a serial killer, which is kind of how the film's portrayed. But it's yeah. one of the earliest examples of like having that header of like trigger warning with this is just a film. Don't take it seriously. Yeah, and you could kind of tell right from the start of the movie, at least I could, like, it was going to be different. Like, the, the, the way the beginning was set up, and, like, you could just tell the main guy, um, Martin or, or Georgie, mm-hmm. you could just tell that he was he was just kind of, the way he the guy portrayed him, like, you could just tell when the camera zooms in on him, like, he's psycho. Like, you could just tell in that first couple minutes of the film, like, this guy ain't all there. Even though the first few minutes of him on screen aren't necessarily villainous if anything he's kind of set up to be the uh protagonist of the film he's taking he's taking care of his mentally challenged brother whose mother has pretty much disowned him and the only person that really cares for him anymore is martin played by Howell bennett who just kills it in this movie i would say he's on line with anthony perkins and psycho for sure. And just having that magnetic performance of hot and cold, so well played. And how the story yeah. kind of starts off is that he is visiting his brother who's been put in an institution. His mother has remarried, and the new husband has no idea that she has this son who, in the terms of the time, a term that I don't condone, they call him a Mongol. He has Down syndrome. <laughs> he's, he's, he's not very well mentally so martin has been caring for him and visiting him and bringing him toys so we're led to think that martin is like this just really nice character until he visits a toy shop where he sees our lead female character susan played by the lovely Haley mills just a few years after she did the parent trap i was i was i was I was wondering where I knew her from, and that, then I had to when I was looking up the film and I was looking up the characters. I was like, "Oh, Haley Mills, the Parent Trap, the original Parent Trap. That's where I know her from." Right. It was really, it was really different, and you could just tell, like, just by the way he looks, like he's just so good in this role that you could just tell that he is not all like he's just a psycho. You could, just, at least for me, when I was watching it, you could just tell, like, you know, there's something's gonna go down. And it's funny because it's not like that kind of psychotic that you'd be afraid of if you saw him. It's more the psychotic where it's extremely well calculated, where he can turn it on and turn it off at will, at least for the first half of the movie. Yeah, exactly. It's like he could, he, that, that's what makes it even more creepier, in my opinion. It's like somebody that's a psycho like that, that could just kind of turn it on, turn it off. That's way more creepier than somebody that's like psycho all the time. Yeah, and since we we as the audience get to watch this whole story unfold, it even adds more to the tension because it's kind of like those those slasher movies where we tell the people not to run up the stairs because there's someone up there. We're right. like pretty much shouting at the screen to Haley Mills, don't hang around this guy. Don't be nice to him. But of course, we can't do anything. We're just the audience. So we have to watch it unfold. Yeah, that's and that's the thing is, and that's the thing. It's like you're, the whole time I was watching it, I was just kind of like, "Dude, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Come on!" <laughs> you can just tell, and like the way he interacts. There's like these moments where he, the way he interacts with his dad, like when his mom's with that, his whole relationship with his with his mom was like weird. It reminded me. It just reminded me of like uh, 
how people were really big into into Freud for a while, yeah. Sigmund Freud, and they would talk about the relationship with the mother. Um, but that relationship was just strange to me. And that made the movie, for some reason, that made the movie even creepier to me, the way she doted over him and the mm-hmm. way she would talk about him. And like, that just made it even more, like you could tell like, oh, this is why he's kind of like this way. Yeah. Like is over his mom <laughs> is overbearing there's yeah. and, it, and they they talk a little bit about the scientific aspect of it later which we can delve into later but one of the things that they mentioned kind of early on is that back then it was thought of and i think it still kind of is these days that if you had a child with down syndrome as your first child they highly suggested you not try and have a second one in case there yeah. is a chance of, of him having that, that chromosome issue. So she has Martin, and Martin seems perfectly normal and fine. And so she dotes on him because to her, he's a blessing. Therefore, he's spoiled. He never has to do a thing. She marries into right. money again. And so now his whole life is kind of set up for him, at least on paper. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. And then they have that, like his dad's all... Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, I noticed during that during that point during that time when he was just like, he would have those interactions with his dad or his stepdad. Sorry, he'd have those interactions with his stepdad, and you could just see the way he would change from talking to his mom to talking to his stepdad. It was just like an instant, like, I don't really care about you. You're not my real dad, kind of thing. He just blows him off. He, yeah, he just kind of blows him off. And when they they were talking about him going to Australia in that scene, yeah. And he's just like, I'm not going anywhere, daddy. Exactly. Kind of creepy like that. (laughs) So then it's really interesting when we kind of have the, in movie terms, we call their meet cute, where the, the main female and male characters are introduced. Martin notices Haley Mills, Susan, buying some toys in a toy shop. And so he steals a little rubber ducky with the intention of actually being caught so he can make a connection with this girl. The store detectives yeah. see him do it. They bring both of them into the office because they think that they're in cahoots. They're doing it together. She's obvious. Like I've never seen this guy before in my life. And he plays the next role. Very interestingly, he regresses into this childlike identity named Georgie. Georgie likes ducks. Never meant to take it. He forgot. Absent-minded, eh? So your name's Georgie, is it? And your friend here, what's her name? Georgie has no friends. Georgie wants to go home now. I dare say he does, but let's see what he's got in the other pocket first. He's acting like he's mentally challenged, which is something he knows about because he spent all this time visiting his brother at the institution. Yeah, it almost makes you wonder if he was visiting his brother so he could get he could kind of set that up somehow down the line. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, maybe not with this girl, but just learning mannerisms yeah. in a way that he could get out of things. And it works because, yeah. you know, she ends up paying for the toy. But now he gets her address because the policeman asks her for it. So now he knows her name. He knows where she lives. And she, all this time, just thinks that he is this innocent, 
mentally challenged young man who's kind of good looking. And right. <laughs> the, the film touches on that a little bit later in a rather uncomfortable but interesting way, which we'll get yeah, to. Yeah, that was, that, was, that was uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that point eventually. <laughs> so, like, the next part of this is that we find out that Susan lives with her mother in a boarding house. She has a big house that she rents to different tenants. One of those tenants is, like, a film editor that works for TV and the other one is a Hindu fellow who is in medical school in London. And there's a lot of witty banter kind of going on between everyone in that house. But one of the things that I caught really early on is that the mother only rents to handsome young men. Yeah. I, I See, I didn't catch that right away. And then I... Then I then I noticed it throughout the movie, like when they said, like they, when he when Georgie came in, I guess I'm jumping ahead, but which is fine. Uh, um, when he figured out where she lived, and then he they, he just randomly got a note from his dad, and all that stuff went down. Um, he randomly shows up at her play at the place, and she was gonna turn him away for a second, and then she she like had this look. She looked at him kind of. Yeah. There's a part where she looked at him where. She was like, oh, no, I think he can stay. I don't think he'll be much trouble. And right. then, or it, was, it was just a weird look that she gave him. And I that's when I noticed it. And that's when I looked around. I noticed the other guys at the house. I'm like, oh, wow, they are all, like, good-looking guys. <laughs> so, like, she's protective of her daughter when it comes to, like, dealing with boys. But she lets her smoke. She lets her drink. She treats her like an adult. We don't really get a whole lot of history of, like, what happened to the dad or what the whole upbringing right. was which we really don't need it. We kind of get the idea of what their dynamic is just based on how the mom treats the young men in the house. Yeah, yeah, for sure. My guess is probably at some point the mom had a fling with a younger man, the dad walked out and left, and she still has her tastes for the younger men, and that's why she leases only to them. That's what I got from the film. Yeah, that's what I started noticing. And even before that, like later on the scene, you find something out. But I always notice between that one, the one guy, like you could just tell there was like, there's like this, that sexual tension between that, the screenwriter guy yeah. and the mom. 100%. Like even from, uh, yeah, like even from first scene, like when he's in the living room and he's talking about uh, the, the screenplay he's working on or whatever. And, uh, the way they look back and forth, you can just pick up, at least I could, I picked up on the kind of sexual tension between them. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It Which, just made it for like the, all in all, like that whole, like the way that just kind of builds, it's just makes the movie even that much more suspenseful. Like it's a, it's a slow build throughout the whole film, which yeah. I really, really like. Because that tension doesn't even really have to be there. Cause it's got nothing to do with the two main characters. It's just right. building a world of discomfort, which this film just sits in and it makes you sit in it too. And that's why I think it's such a great movie for that reason. You never right. feel safe. Right. Like that, like, like that scene when he's in his room, when Georgie or Martin is in his room by himself and he starts, the, the one where he's in his room and he yeah. starts taking off all this. Like, I'm surprised at 1968 that they went that far. So we can get into that right now because yeah. it kind of leads into it. So, as we kind of get more of an idea of Martin slash Georgie, as of right now, Georgie only exists to Susan and her family. Martin's family has no idea that he has this second persona that he uses. 
like you said, there's a lot of tension between the father. The father wants to send him to Australia. He wants him to do something with himself while he is perfectly content just living off of his parents in his room. But then we get a peek into his room and we get an idea that obviously something's not right with Martin. We wonder where he really is with his sexuality because he's got bodybuilding magazines in his room, yet he also is really attracted to Susan. There's a scene where he is in a rocking chair with a panda bear and he's rocking over the photograph of his stepdad continuously crunching it. This is later. But it kind yeah. of just gives you this idea of where he's at with his dad. But the most yeah. interesting thing apart about that part in his room is he takes off his clothes and he's looking at himself in the mirror and you hear a loud crash. And as we cut to the crash, you see that he has thrown something at the mirror and smashing it right where his nether regions would be, where his, you know, his genital region. So the psychology behind that, I think, is like not only does he wish he was a bodybuilder, we're kind of led to think that maybe he is inadequate in his opinion when it comes to his physique. Later on in the film, that comes back, but that that part about the nether regions comes back later on in the film. But But once again, it really kind of gives you an insight into the mind of this guy who we don't know is a killer yet. Who knows? He He may have never even killed before. Maybe we're watching the downward spiral into his true madness. So- yeah, that's what I think it is, and that's what I think they do a really good job. It's the it's just a it's just a continual downward spiral for him, and you can just see it develop through these little scenes. Like things keep bubbling up, like him not wanting to go to Australia, stuff like that. It just keeps going and going and going. And the fact that he the fact that later on that he can't differentiate between Georgie and Martin, kind of in my opinion, plays more into like, it was building through the beginning of the movie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Georgie just appeared somehow. I don't know where he came up with the name Georgie or whatever, but he just appeared out of no, kind of nowhere when he was in that shop, when he got caught stealing that thing. Yeah. And I don't know if it was from the time that he was hanging out with his brother, that he just started developing that. And mm-hmm. then he, he was just waiting for a moment to use it. You just never know. But there's that build into him going mad basically throughout the movie and it's just the way it's done it's just so good it's so good and it's like you don't want to like it's uncomfortable at some points but you don't want to like fast forward the movie you don't want to like like i watched it all the way through and it was just so enjoyable all the way through well you also don't want to miss anything because exactly it it does throw a lot of little nuances in there that i'm not going to say are foreshadowing but more like they make a lot of sense when the film plays through to the end they don't mean exactly. a lot at first, and then they mean everything in the third act. That's what I mean by so well done. It's like you got to pay attention to all the little stuff in the movie. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a lot of little things that build up in throughout the movie, and then it all comes crashing down in that third act. And that third act is so good. The third act is so good. Yeah. So what gets us there is he comes up with this cool little plan. The plan is his dad wants to send him away to Paris, so he gives him money, he gives him tickets, he packs his suitcases, and as far as the family knows, Martin is on his way. But what he does is he goes straight to the boarding house as Georgie with a letter from his father, quote unquote, saying that his dad's a businessman and he needs a place to stay. Can he please stay at this boarding house? So Susan, who knows him, but only like only for a little bit, 
Like she saw him at the toy store. Then he came to the library and borrowed a book as he's been kind of like stalking her throughout the city. He connives his way into a room at the boarding house. Yeah, and he, and that, at the beginning, it's only for one night. They're like, she's like, they're and the way they kind of came up, it's like it was raining, and he was like, oh no, Georgie, okay, Georgie, and he's like, I'll figure something out. The way he talks, it's yeah. like the way he was talking, it's like oh, and he just kind of me meanders out the door, and he's kind of walking out the door, and they're like feeling bad for him. They're like, oh, we can't just let him go out in the rain. He can stay in my room for it. the way he does it is just so. But he's so charming, and the funny thing is, is that. As much as Susan like cares for him and defends him, even to like the the people that she's friends with who don't like him, she still defends him. It really isn't Susan's idea for him to stay longer. It's the mother's idea. Yeah, and that's where you get that whole thing, like you said earlier, about her liking younger men, because you start seeing the way she's like, the way she starts looking at him, like when when he doesn't have it have a shirt on when he's like mowing the grass. Yeah. It's like kind of like day. it's kind of like that reverse Lolita thing where it's like he he's he's out there, he's young, she's older, she's single. We kind of get the idea she likes younger men. He knows exactly what he's doing and how to play these cards. The problem is though is that he desperately wants the affections of Susan, but they're not there. She no. she thinks of him as a a cute little boy who needs help, even though one of her like fancy handsome friends is like, Oh, that guy's a pretty one, isn't he? And she's like, yes, he is. So you know that she does look at him in a way that uh, an attractive girl would view an attractive guy, but she just kind of brushes it off for her. There's a million attractive guys out there. Why is he any different? Her connection with him is more of like almost maternal. She wants to make sure that he doesn't get messed with she now feels like she has to protect them. You know what I mean? She's like the protector. And uh, yeah, it's just so, it's just so well done. But it's a double-edged sword for him because in a way it's demasculating, you know, because yeah. he wants her as Martin. He wants her physically. He wants her romantically. But because he's now made this connection with her as Georgie and she's very maternal to him, it almost builds his kind of resentment towards the situation because he really in his mind knows that he's never going to win her as Georgie. So now yeah. he's plotting on how can he transition into Martin without scaring her away, which that's not going to happen. No, it doesn't really work out for him. There, and there's that scene where they're all like hanging out and listening to music in the living room. Yeah. And uh, and he knocks. He gets. Re you could just tell, like the way the camera's focusing in on him. Like he's just like you were saying, starting to get way super resentful watching the boyfriend like dance with her and stuff like that. You could just tell, like in his head, like he's trying to figure out, like how can I make this? How can I turn back to Martin? Like, he, and he doesn't. It's not said, but you could just tell the way he looks at the camera, the way the camera looks at him, mm -hmm. and his facial expressions. Like that's what's going through his head. He gets up, he gets all upset at that scene and he gets up and he just throws it. He breaks the stereo. Yep. Like as Georgie, like, and then you could just tell like instantly after he breaks the stereo, he turns back into Georgie. Yep. It's so good. It's so good. And with all that pent up tension and anger and just resentment towards Susan for not loving him, Martin's got to kill something, man. <laughs> yeah, he does. He's <laughs> like, you could just tell it's getting there. <laughs> 
So who better to kill than the person he hates the most, his stepdad, in a very stylish and well-done proto-slasher move. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, his dad pulls into the garage, and Georgie is right behind him in a rain slicker, which kind of reminded me of American Psycho when Patrick Bateman puts on the raincoat before he acts. Yeah, that's what it reminded me of, too. I was waiting for him to start talking about Huey Lewis and the news. And dancing. I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, please start wiggling your hips and like walking towards him. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because like the stepdad doesn't take any fear because, oh, it's just March. And he's like, oh, back from Paris. And yeah. then he comes at him with a pair of scissors and does the dude in. And it's pretty bloody for 1968. It's pretty, like, it even matches up to some scenes in movies now, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the whole time I was watching, I was like, man, this movie's so far ahead of its time. Like, I don't know how it did in the theater or anything like that when it was released, but it's like, you don't even, like, I don't know, I didn't get the feeling like it was a 1968 movie, you know what I mean? Right. Like, I, I thought it could have been made today to take place in 1968, you know what I mean? Especially in England, because it, around this time, they were doing a lot of... um kind of like cult, demonic, also giallo films in Italy. Films that were really kind of violent and ahead of their time, like Mario Bava was doing stuff in like the early to mid-60s. You would you were seeing the early roots of gore in films, but right. it hadn't really hit in England yet. In fact, England was so well known for being conservative in its its movies and how violence was portrayed even throughout the 70s and 80s, they were banning all sorts of violent films. So this one was really interesting that it kind of made it before that all happened because it is pretty right. bloody. Yeah, it is. And that scene, that scene, like I said, like you were saying, that scene is pretty, it's pretty gory for 1968. So now we kind of like roll into the the second act as we are starting to become aware that Susan is now uncomfortable around Martin or Georgie because things kind of start happening. The police, for one, are trying to find right. the killer of his dad. There's articles in the news. But not only that, he's starting to kind of take risks and break yeah. his character. So one of the things that kind of gets us on that journey is one night, he pretends that he's having a nightmare. And he crawls into bed with Susan's mother. Yeah, and that's like right after he kills his dad, too. <laughs> it's right after he kills his dad. It's almost as if he's like, I got away with some shit. Let's see what yeah. else I can get away with. And yeah. she, because she still thinks of him as simple-minded, she brings him into his bed, and then she does a very interesting thing. She locks the door. Yeah, yeah, and that's where he got it. I mean, she, like, she cuddled with him the rest of the night. You know, that's kind of creepy. And she smokes a cigarette and it fades out. You don't know what else is happening. The reason why I mentioned locking the door is because right around that same time, the screenwriter guy gets out of his room in the middle of the night and he walks to her room and goes straight for the door handle, expecting it to be open as if it's something that he's done a dozen times before on the regular, but it's locked. And he knocks, and she doesn't answer. He knocks like five times. She doesn't answer. Fade to black. And then we see the next morning at breakfast, Georgie gets a plate with like two eggs and bacon and beans, (laughs) and then the screenwriter guy gets a boiled egg. 
Yeah, he, he gets so, and he's he has like the best lines in that movie. Like, he, he has, does. He's like he's like such a smartass. It's so great. Like he's like the comic relief of this film to me. He kind of is. He's not a likable character, but he does bring like the only real laughs in this movie. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember what he says to him, but or like have an interesting he, night last night or something. I can't remember, but it was like really smartass. Once and really like once he sees that the that Georgie gets the full plate of breakfast and he gets an egg, he says. I guess you're not too backwards now, are you, Georgie? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like really, ooh, it, it, Georgie, George, like you can tell, like there's a part when the camera shifts to Georgie, yeah. like Martin wants to say something, but he just plays it off as Georgie. Like, just, yeah, he like, just kind of like smirks and lets it go. Great yeah. performance. But again, that is just something that I think the filmmakers are trying to show us that, okay, she does have little flings with her her tenants, and that's why they are young men. And now it's kind of right. created this kind of power struggle among the household, and Georgie <laughs> holds all the cards because like he's starting to feel comfortable. Dad. Yeah, yeah, he's starting to feel comfortable, and he doesn't want to play the routine anymore. And yeah. especially now, because now that he's been there a few days, Susan's mother doesn't really suspect him of being a danger to anything. Susan right. starts kind of taking him more into her confidence and they start doing more things socially. Again, a hundred percent platonic on her part, or at least we're led to believe until the notorious swimming scene, which oh, yeah. it's really, that one is a, a conundrum because it kind of questions where Susan really is. So Susan yeah. takes him swimming and they're both like in their skimpy bathing suits and at first it seems all plenty innocent until they get out and it's time to change. Georgie, I should say Martin, makes it a point to creep out from behind the tree so that Susan can see him fully nude. In and all of his glory. <laughs> in all of his glory. But we don't know what that glory is. And her, right. her face is one of like shock and surprise, but it could mean so many different things. Like, like the thing from the beginning, that's what I was saying, how it develops through the movie. Like, they had it at the beginning of the movie where he takes a shot with the mirror at the yeah. at, at that area, and then that part with Susan, and then later on. Yeah. But that's for the third scene. But uh, in this scene, like, it's interesting because, like, her face could mean one of many things. Right. Based around the guys she hangs around with, I highly doubt it's the first nude man she's seen before. Like, she kind right. of seems to be a part of, like, the swinging 60s lifestyle. Yeah. So she's either just surprised that she's seeing simple-minded Georgie nude for the first time, but what is she seeing? Is he well endowed or is he inadequate the way he might think he is? We don't know. Again, they're just adding more more mystery for us to swim in as we try and figure this movie out. During that part where he goes and then all of a sudden like it changes and he he changes back to Georgie really quick and starts picking her flowers where she she apologizes. She's yep. like, "Oh no, let me change. It's my fault." So she he takes the blame for it. She takes the blame tried, for it. Yeah. Where he's just like act, trying to play it off like he's Georgie again and he's yep. picking the flowers for her. And uh, when he comes back with the flowers to surprise her, you can just see the change in his face mm -hmm. when he tries to kiss her. Like you just yep. see, like he, cut, he, cut, he turns back into Martin. The way that I interpreted it, it was that he thinks he got away with like an inch. And now he's going to go for the mile because she, yeah, that's another good way to look at it. Yeah. Like, like she even went and changed, but barely non-visible. Like he can still see 
a little bit of flesh here and there, where if she really, truly cared, she would have gone somewhere where he couldn't see at all. So right. it's kind of giving him this idea of like, oh, well, maybe I can still make my move. And when he, when he goes in to kiss her, he goes in to kiss her as Georgie, but once he's kissing her, he's definitely Martin. He's definitely Martin when he's kissing her. <laughs> and that is when she first realizes, I think, for the first time that this is not a stable personality. And this person may not even be who he says he is. Yeah. You can just see the way the way her expression changes. Now, here's my question, <laughs> Shane. Do you think that if the guy on the bicycle who rode by with the little like yachting crew or whatever yeah. the, the rowing crew yeah, yeah, came yeah. by. Do you think if those guys didn't come by, do you think that he would have tried to kill her right then and there? I don't think he would have tried to kill her right then and there. I think he would have, I think it would have been more like he would have, he would have tried to rape her right then and there. Maybe. I, I mean, I don't know if I, yeah. I, I mean, it would be unconsensual. I don't want to say the R word. Too much, yeah. Sorry. I think he would have tried to press his luck a little more. There's definitely rage in his eyes, the rage that yeah. we saw when he killed his dad. And that's why I was always wondering, I wonder if he would have taken that extra step. I don't know. But regardless, they get away. Yeah, I don't know either. But I mean, I think the guy with the rowing team kind of saved us, saved her from that. Yeah. From any kind of, because I think it would have got, he would have gotten more aggressive in kind of a sexual way. And I don't think he would have killed her right then and there. And so that kind of leads us into the third act because now Susan just doesn't feel comfortable with the Georgie Martin situation. And she goes and he, she snoops in his room and she starts seeing um, a book of, of signatures, Martin Dursley. She's like, yeah. who's Martin Dursley? And then she realizes that his dad was the guy that was killed that's all over the newspapers. Yeah. And so she goes to the Dursley house to find out what happened and she's still thinking that it's Georgie. So when she asks the the housekeeper and then the mother about Georgie, they're like, well, who's Georgie? My son's name is Martin. And on the way out, she sees Martin's picture on the mantle and realizes that she's been dealing with a con artist essentially the whole time. And yeah. that everyone <laughs> in that household is in danger. Yeah. That's where and you can just see the way she looks at that picture, just a terror on her face where she's just like, like just startled, like terrified, like, Oh no, this isn't. And before that, the mom's like, the mom's like, no, you got to leave. Cause Martin's nothing like that. She tries mm -hmm. telling him what's going on. And the mom's like, Oh no, that's not my Martin. And she asked her to come back, but you don't know what they say when she comes back into the room. Yes. Right away. And at the same time, there is a police investigation, and the lead investigator is actually a lot smarter than I think the film gives him credit for, because it kind of shows that the police are just kind of bumbling around the evidence, and he's just not taking the simple explanation as the answer. He's digging deeper, you know, and he's asking the servants instead of the parents, because he knows that the servants probably have a more honest opinion about Martin than the mom does. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was, I thought that was, I thought the, the way they played the cop, that, especially the lead detective, I thought that they played him really well. And like, like you said, he was like, every scene he was like, no, this just doesn't sit right with me. Like there's gotta, there's more to this. Like how does somebody just walk in and just randomly stab somebody for no reason kind of thing. And then he starts, when he's talking to the butler, he kind of, I think he starts putting it together when he's talking to the butler about the relationship with the stepdad, Martin, and the butler starts telling him, oh, no, I don't know what, from what I gathered, the butler knew 
oh no, Martin puts on an act kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. For sure. And like, he's like, just go look in his room. You'll see what this kid's up to. Yeah. But as we roll into the third act, Susan avoids her home as much as possible because she doesn't want to be there while Georgie's there. So she starts kind of like really asking the psychological and medical questions. That's what we assume the mom has told her because she goes and seeks out her friend who's the Hindi medical student that lives in her building. And yeah. as she's walking into the hospital, he is in the middle of a lecture that someone's giving about the Mongol, so to speak, chromosome and what leads to this mental development stage. Now the abnormal. Do you see? The abnormality is here. A translocated fusion. Part of one chromosome is split off and fused with another. There is now a one in three chance that any child produced will be... A Mongol. That's what his brother really is. Mm. Not a sheep farmer in Australia. Mm. Rough. Yes. But that wasn't all. In most cases, bad luck. An accident of nature. The next child, perfectly normal. But if the fusion is permanent, and a blood test will show, then we have to warn the unfortunate person. No more children. They might just as well have told her not to breathe. So she went ahead, did she, and had Martin? Oh dear, oh dear. She's so lost, so lonely, Shashi. She didn't love, she worshipped him. Fed him, washed him, dressed him. There wasn't anything she didn't do for him. And every day of his life, she searched him. Searched for signs. The shape of his eyes, and the palms of his hands, and the soles of his little feet. All the time, scared to death at what she might find. The way he's explaining it is, you know, the the extra chromosome, the malformed chromosomes is what causes this person to have Down syndrome and why the parent shouldn't have a second child. So now we're kind of getting into this idea that Martin is the way he is because he is the secondary child after a child with Down syndrome. Again, this is kind of, I guess you would call it pseudoscience, like they don't really want to have you take this as fact. It's just their way of a plot driver. Right. But that's kinda how I got that's kinda how I got it. It was just a way to kind of drive home the fact that Martin's not all there. Exactly. It's like they don't come out and say it's like a down syndrome person. It's like they use this term that's like antiquated. I don't think they could use it. I could I don't think they could get away with using that term these days. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. Like and and like I feel uncomfortable saying it, but it's the way it's portrayed in the film. And yeah. I feel like even they were uncomfortable saying it that way because they did put that disclaimer at the top of the movie. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So she feels now that like there is a lot more to Martin than what appears, but she might be too late because as we switch to where Martin is now, he is in the woodshed behind with no shirt on, with no shirt on <laughs> sawing wood i think out of just sexual tension is the way i yeah now... no because the lady because the maid asked him to go get some wood for the fire before oh that's right he, when he came home she he was like where's susan where's susan and the maid was like oh you want to make yourself useful go chop some wood we need some wood for the fire mad <laughs> yeah he's getting all those frustrations out and this is where we realize that there really is a lot more to susan's mom all of our instincts were correct. She yeah. <laughs> she sees him without his shirt on. She's day drinking. She's in her negligee. She goes out to the woodshed and just starts laying on 
the sexual energy against him. Yeah, it was like, and that was another one that was like, you just kind of watch it and you're like, oh, that's a little uncomfortable. <laughs> and what makes it like even that's... more uncomfortable is that he obviously doesn't want it. Exactly. That's what that's what I was going. That's what I was going with. It's like he did, he just is trying to ignore her, and she's just like throwing herself at him. And it's he like, keeps oh. he keeps working on that piece of wood, and cuts his hand while he's doing it. To me, the way I interpreted it is that he sees the blood, and that blood is a trigger for him to want more. She reaches into his pants to get the handkerchief, and it's oh so seductive. And then he goes after her with the hatchet. Yeah, and it's something about, I, I'm telling you throughout the movie, it's something about the the, the the region down there that like every time it's like I don't know if it's like you said earlier where it's like he feels like he's inadequate down there or what. But I mean, they play that they play that throughout the movie. If you catch it throughout the movie, they play that throughout the movie. There's another scene later on. We're in the shit now because yeah, is her body's in the woodshed. He knows what he wants to do now with Susan. And at this point, the screenwriter guy comes home because earlier he was asked to leave. And he's like, oh, I get it. She doesn't want to fool around with me anymore. She wants to fool around with this Georgie kid. So yeah. he's kind of there for like his last day before he's kicked out. And he's drunk because he got fired. Yeah. And he notices that the woodshed is open. And he goes and peeks inside and finds what's going on. Yeah. He gets all of that just tears it. He gets all messed up over it. I mean, I guess I would too, if I walked in there and there was a chopped up body in there, but well, especially if it's someone that you were intimate with and it's well played. He plays it well. Like he plays not only a drunk guy. Well, but a drunk guy that just finds a body. Well, like the whole cast in this movie is so good. Susan rushes home. She's been given strict instructions to call her medical student friend or the police. If anything shows up that like Martin or Georgie is there, she runs into her room only to find that Martin was hiding behind the door and locks her in with him. And he, he, she runs into I, when I, she runs into the room and then she finds all the clothes cut up. Like he had cut all of her clothes and just lays out one the white, white dress. dress. On the bed. <laughs> yeah. And then he, then he locks it. Oh God, that's so good. The white dress. And it's like, we talked earlier about him getting an inch and going for the mile. He definitely goes for it here because for one, he's got a gun. Yeah. He's got a knife and yeah. he puts out this white dress for her because it is her wedding dress, according to yeah. him. Yeah, he's going for the whole shebang now. He's 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 absolutely lost it now. Yeah, he ain't Georgie no more. <laughs> yeah, he's not Georgie Manor. He's he's all Martin, which is funny because when we get to the true ending of this film, the juxtaposition of it is just yeah. mind blowing. I absolutely yeah. love it. This is where it kind of gets Hitchcockian. The scene where she's walking up the stairs to go to her room is shot in such like a long lens, very kind of dreamlike sequence and manner. Yeah, it reminds yeah, you me when get those vibes. It reminds those me in uh, yeah, it reminds me in Psycho when uh, Lila Crane is walking up the stairs at the end of the film, hoping to find uh, Norman Bates's mom in her bedroom, and it's just really kind of. Yeah. The focus is slightly pulled and it's very dreamlike. That's the feeling that I got out of this. And then it just goes into sheer chaos where now Martin has become this this true psychopath that he's always been, but now it's just unfiltered. Yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely unfiltered now. <laughs> but they have that whole scene upstairs where again he tries 
to like he gets her in the corner and he tries to rape her again and it's that he has that thing where where he grabs his he grabs his genitals mm-hmm. again and it's like all of a sudden he's just like in so much fear and he shoots Demir like so this yeah because like there really is no going back from that and this is and there, I'm sure there's many ways it could be interpreted the way right. I saw it was there is a part of Martin that loves Susan so much that the psychopath that really is Martin can't really complete the act of the sexual assault or the murder of her because there's love there. So when he shoots the mirror, he's actually shooting Martin. It's now... That makes sense. That makes sense because, yeah, that makes total sense. Because for the rest of the film, the whole last five minutes of it, he's now Georgie. He crawls towards her on the bed and he's like... It's Georgie. Martin's gone now. It's just Georgie. The police get him. They throw him into the insane asylum. And the last shot of the film is us kind of pulling away from him out of his cell, just slightly mumbling, Susan, Susan. (laughs) But he's doing it as Georgie. So that's my view on how the film ends. Yeah, that's kind of the way I go with it, too. I mean, it's just... That whole last scene is really good. Like I said, the whole movie's good, but that last scene, man, it was like, that's pretty intense for 1968. If you're like, I was watching and I was like, man, that's intense. <laughs> like, she, <laughs> they're showing a lot of stuff that you don't normally see in like 1960, like the whole him throwing her into the corner scene and like the whole. Yeah, at least not just, in England. And they were barely yeah. doing it in America. And like I said, you know, you had new Hollywood creeping into into cinemas, like the more independent films, films shot in New York, Midnight Cowboy. You had Scorsese a couple years later that were kind of like taking cues from what they were doing in Europe, kind of pushing the envelope and pushing boundaries. But this one I think is just so ahead of its time because it does focus a lot on the psychology of a, of a murderer, the psychology of a serial killer. I agree with you. <laughs> That's all yeah. I can say. Is, yeah, it's so intense. And it was just like, the whole build was so worth it. Like you see movies nowadays and sometimes like a suspenseful movie is like really good. And then the last act comes in and you're like so disappointed by the last act. You're just like, oh, that was such a letdown. But the rest of the movie was great. And it's like, I've seen so many movies like that. And this one was nothing like that. It was just all the way through the suspense was there. And it's like, that last act was the payoff, the payoff, right. and it just made it. People who would see this, you would hear this ending, you would think of it like an M. Night Shyamalan movie, like the end of oh, yeah, yeah. The Sixth uh, Sense. Yeah. Yeah, people would talk about it like the end of The Sixth Sense, like you have this cool twist that you weren't expecting with a very haunting finish. Like, people don't talk about endings like that from movies that old really anymore. Now, yeah. we totally blew over one of the most interesting parts of this film and that is the theme music had you oh yeah the whistling you'd heard that before right a couple quentin tarantino movies i've heard i know i heard it in kill bill so that's that's the film that really brought it back was yeah kill bill had that when the nurse uh ellie driver is whistling it and you would start hearing that after kill bill came out you'd hear that in commercials you'd hear it on ringtones it just was like everywhere
it originated in this movie. I, that's what I found interesting because when he was whistling coming down the road, I was just like, oh, it's the Kill Bill theme. It's the Kill Bill theme. So that score, that little tune, was written by Bernard Herrmann, who is also known for doing the theme music to Psycho. So, oh, wow. I didn't know that. so he's got the psycho strings and he's got the twisted nerve whistle as well as many others. But those two, I think, are now synonymous with with killers. <laughs> so if you were to suggest this film to someone who had never seen it, what would you say the selling points are that you would that you would promote it with? It's like I, when I when I told my co-host Max to watch it, I'm like, dude, it's. So it's just a really good suspense movie all the way through. You're not going to be let down at the end. That's kind of how I sold it to him. He watched, he watched it and he really liked it. That's kind of what I tell people. Like if you've never seen this film, it's a really like the ending's going to get you. <laughs> yeah. It's not one of those movies where you can kind of tell where the suspense is going. You right. know what I mean? Like you, you didn't know if that was going to play a point later on, which kind of kept your attention. Well, it makes you want to watch film. it again is a thing. You yeah, want to go exactly. watch it again and like see what you missed. I always ask this of all my guests, what film would you pair this with if you were doing a double feature? You know what comes to mind is maybe because we talked about it earlier, but I would actually put this one with American Psycho. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could, I could see the Patrick Bateman kind of relatability to this guy in a kind of a weird way, in kind of a weird way, but I could see the parallels between the two films. Yeah. Between, between Twisted Nerve and American Psycho. And I'm sure that there's a lot of influences this film had on future films about killers and sociopaths and psychopaths, for right. sure. I think that I would probably pair this. There's a Owen Wilson film from the early 2000s called The Minus Man. About, I've never seen it. It's about a serial killer who's pretty much does everything in the most efficient way possible. Like, that's why they call him the Minus Man. That's what the film's about, is that he is a very efficient, low-key serial killer that's not looking for fame. It's all about taking the easiest approach to killing somebody. So whereas Martin is very frantic and hyper-psychopathic, yeah, it's kind of like a complimentary film where it takes you to the opposite end of that spectrum. So you can get your huh. blood up with one, and then kind of like still have your serial killer cake and eat it too, but mellower. Right. Yeah, I, I have to check that movie out. I've never seen it before. So yeah, check it out. It's got Owen Wilson and Janine Garofalo, and it was written and directed by Hampton Fancher, who was the writer of Blade Runner. Cool, cool. Well, Shane, I had a fun time talking about this movie with you. I'm glad you went and saw it and you're telling other people to watch it as well. How about you shoot out your socials and where people can find your podcast really fast? Yeah, you can find our podcast on any any podcast platform, Good Pods, Spotify, Apple, all the major pl- platforms. Uh, you can tweet it. We're on Twitter, Shane and I Show on Twitter. Uh, we're also on Instagram. The Instagram is just Shane and I. All this stuff, that's all the, all the places we're at. <laughs> awesome. I had a great time. and I did too. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For sure, for sure. We'll do this again. We'll talk about some other uh, twisted killer film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, everyone that's listening, the next film on our list is going to be Whatever Happened to Baby Jane with Nikki E., who was on episode one. You can currently find that on HBO Max. So, if you want a spoiler-free experience, jump on HBO and watch that. And I will see you all later. Shane, have a good night. All right, you too. Thanks, man.